This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Bogue. Hello, everyone. My name is Joris Peels, and this is another episode of the 3D Pod. And uh, with me, as always, is Maxwell Bogue. Hey, Joris. How you doing? I'm good, Max. I'm good, Max. How are you? I'm fine. Who do we have on the 3D pod today? Well, uh, today we've got Corey Doctorow. I feel like this is my cue to shout, uh, it's a me, Mario. Uh, (laughs) It's it's Corey Doctorow here. (laughs) Hi, hi, Corey. How you doing? Uh, uh, I'm well, thank you. How are you? I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. (laughs) It's nice to chat with you, uh, Allison, her best. Oh, that's good, dude. That's good. I haven't seen her in such a long time. Uh, and I uh, hope you guys are well. And in California. We are very well. And, uh, in yeah? California. Okay. I still have the, yeah. the 3D printed uh, 3D model of my femur that Alice had you print oh. for me uh, back when I had my <laughs> hip surgery and they produced that MRI. It's still on my keychain. <laughs> okay, oh, good. Nice. <laughs> yeah, so you every time I unlock a door. <laughs> do you have anything of me yeah or your femur or, or me and well, your femur to have yeah. both both of my hips replaced and i showed the yeah. the key fob to my orthopedic yeah. surgeon he was very impressed yeah, yeah? okay you i can do that as a, a skeleton key oh no that was horrible max that was horrible um but um okay that's good because uh see that's marketing folks you give the person a key fob and they 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 take it with them forever and i also printed remember i printed the cover of your book makers as well that's right yeah it's a beautiful printout i still have that here in my office as well Okay, that's good. That's good. I'm glad. Well, anyway, so for the, for the uninitiated, uh, we have today with us uh, Corey so who Doctor. Is Corey? <laughs> yeah. So Corey's a, a sci-fi author um, who's written books like Little Brother and Makers, which we're referring to, which is like the the, the, the front cover of which uh, we we three D printed while I was at, uh, at Shapeways. And Makers is a book uh, that. Uh, is a bunch of makers who are trying to hack hardware and business models and living <laughs> arrangements to cover ways, discover ways of staying alive and happy even when the economy is falling down the toilet. And apparently that's called uh, science fiction uh, rather than my life. <laughs> so, yes, <yeah>. uh, <laughs> well, and, then, and, it's, and it's, you know, the stuff about business yeah. models is important, but, but don't forget that, uh, you know, spoilery, the the characters basically abandoned capitalism altogether. So it's not exactly a book about business models as much as it is a book about how the business model might be the wrong frame to think about this stuff. And then we also have Little Brother, which is like uh, uh, one of my favorites. And he's also, which I wrote, uh, love really, is just really like this kind of like, I don't know, mega short story. I don't know what it's called. It's like called Print Crime. And it's about like mm-hmm. a guy who's like printing all the stuff and he gets like, he's, he, they destroy his stuff because he's out printing medicine and, and uh, all sorts of hacks and hardware and stuff like that. And on top of all that, Corey does uh, a lot of fiction stuff that's about internet freedom and freedom of rights and freedom of uh, culture and stuff like that. So that's why uh, we asked uh, Corey to be here with us today. So is it, is it difficult to write science fiction in such a dystopian world? <laughs> no, I mean, not least because... Um, uh, you know, science fiction is not about prediction, but rather about reflection. You know, it's science fiction. Science fiction doesn't tell you what will happen in the future. It tells you what uh, 
the writer hopes or fears will happen in the future. And, you know, when some work of science fiction becomes popular, it tells you about what the readers hope or fear will happen in the future. Uh, anyone who claims that they can tell you what the future holds is a charlatan. You know, the, the, mm-hmm. the future changes based on what we do. Uh, otherwise, you know, why bother getting out of bed? So, you know, I, I, I find writing science fiction in this moment actually quite good. It, it, I've just finished, um, in fact, two books, uh, two novels uh, in, uh, about a month ago. And one of them is a climate utopia. And it's a climate <laughs> utopia whose presumption is not that um, we will avert the climate disaster. It's that we will confront it. So it's a, mm-hmm. it's a novel about people reorienting the global economy towards things like relocating all coastal cities 20 kilometers inland. And, you know, for me, mm-hmm. the difference between utopia and dystopia in that regime is the difference between being in a bus that is barreling towards the cliff edge and the driver insisting that he doesn't want to yank the wheel because the bus might roll. And so you're just <laughs> going to go over the cliff and having the driver yank the wheel and having the bus roll, but being able to like dust yourself off and seek medical attention. And, you know, mm-hmm. I'm, I, I can go for that second one. You know, I, I think that um, mm-hmm. anything beats the, the mm-hmm. inevitable barreling towards our doom. Mm-hmm. And isn't it kind of really funny that the science fiction is always like kind of perennially optimistic about the human condition and humans in general? And they make all these worlds around them that are actually pessimistic about the state of humans. I, or, I don't know. You know I mean, I, look, like the second law of thermodynamics isn't just a good idea. It's the law, right? That things, things <laughs> fall apart, right? And yet mm-hmm. here we are, right? If the, if the second law of thermodynamics were absolute, every city would mm-hmm. fall apart faster than we could build it. So we do something mm-hmm. quite heroic, right? Like a civilization is an heroic thing. Even just the... Mm-hmm assembly of us as something more than a collection of, of base elements mm-hmm. is, mm-hmm. is a, a, a spectacular testament to our ability to beat back entropy. And so, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's true that sometimes both in aggregate and in individuals, humans can be foolish and cruel and short-sighted, but it's also true that over the long run, we are more cooperative than we are defective, right? That, that we do more together. And, mm-hmm. and you know, the, the proof that we need that that's true is me talking to you over the insanely complex system that joins the two of us that was built in defiance of, of entropy. I was going to say, defiance of entropy and for the benefit of the U.S. military. Well, I, I mean, again, you know, like this is, I actually, I quite recommend uh, a book called uh, Anologia by George Dyson, who's Freeman Dyson's son. And it's, oh. a, it's a kind of memoir in history. He's an historian. And it's a kind of memoir in history of his front row seat for the Manhattan Project and the Princeton Institute's creation of the first working computers. And uh, the Atoms for Peace movement that arose out of the physicists who worked on it, and about how the U.S. military itself is not a unitary institution, right? How it was composed of individuals who had a a very wide variety of views and responses to the projects that they were asked to work on, and who took different things away from it and had different motives. And you know, like I'm I'm the last defender you'll ever meet for the U.S. military, but you know. The only thing worse than giving all that money to the U.S. military is not enjoying the positive things that came out of it. 
Unless oh, it's I'm a trap. <laughs> Unless it's a trap. And how it came out. <laughs> it's a trap. No, but, no, but, uh, but well, okay. I think we can go a lot of ways uh, with this. But I think, I think, just generally, I think, I think it's interesting to see that. Okay, but aren't we? Isn't the societal structure or any kind of hierarchy? Isn't that meant to exploit people? Is that why you get people together? I mean, you act like mm-hmm. it's it's like some kind of panacea of goodness, like you know. That we're organized as some structure or a city or something. No, I th- I think that's wrong. I you know I think that the right way to understand how uh, how how groups form and why groups form is to is to do you know you could read like um, Coase's theory of the firm, which is the paper that he got the Nobel Prize for in thirty seven, where he asks himself why do we form institutions, not just hierarchical ones, but any form of institution, cooperatives, criminal gangs, governments, churches, militaries, and so on. And he basically says, look, you know, there's a limit to what one person can do. And so as soon as you've got two people doing something together to, to exceed the limits of one person, to become like literally superhuman, which is to say, say to transcend the limits of one human, then you need to have um, some mechanism whereby you make sure that the person uh, or that the pair of people who've gathered to say knit a sweater haven't divided the labor up accidentally such that one of them is undoing the work that the other one is doing. So as fast as you knit, the other person's mm-hmm. unraveling. And that means that you got to have mm-hmm. a meeting, right? And a policy mm-hmm. and a rule and, uh, mm-hmm. and, and uh, a mechanism for addressing failures, right? Which may be an enforcement mm-hmm. mechanism or it may be a resolution mechanism. Mm-hmm. And that, um, you know, one of the signal virtues of the internet and one of the things that that novel of mind makers that you were so kind about really concerns itself with is mm-hmm. uh, that it really lowers the transaction costs. So mm-hmm. everything that you and I do that involves more than one person has a tax on it in the form mm-hmm. of the transaction costs, the institutional overheads that we have to bring to bear on it. So that's mm-hmm. meetings and mailing lists and compliance documents mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. getting along with people you don't like because they're the only ones who know how to do the task you want to do. and and all the all the other parts of it that aren't doing the job, but making sure that the job gets done. And uh, mm-hmm. what the internet does is it vastly expands what you can do with a given quantum of organizational overhead, such that we do things like write encyclopedias and build operating systems, not with no overheads, but with dramatically less overhead than we used to. Right now we. Now we build an encyclopedia with the kind of overhead that we used to bring to bear on a really ambitious bake sale. And, um, <laughs> and, and that, you know, compared to the historic regime of encyclopedia authorship is, is a multiple order of magnitude difference. And so that mm-hmm. means you can do one of two things, either smaller groups of people, smaller groups of people can do more or well-organized groups of people can do more still, right? So you can either yeah. dismantle the institution that you mm-hmm. have because you don't need it. Or you can mm-hmm. mobilize the institution you have to do more than you've ever done before. And we see examples of both, right? We see free software projects that, you know, for better or for worse, are often one or two people building infrastructure scale, infrastructure significant utilities. I, I, I remember seeing a presentation from University of Indiana's um, Internet Civil Engineering Task Force about what they discovered when they looked into NTP, which is the network time protocol that every single networked computer runs as a critical means of synchronizing clocks, which is what allows everything else to happen. And the person who maintained NTP was one guy who had it on a, <laughs> on a, a bit locker server 
that he'd lost the root password to and hadn't been updated in 10 years. That's the safest thing ever, though. That's so safe. Yeah, right? Well, as it turned out, it wasn't because NTP had a whole bunch of vulns that kept getting exploited for reflection attacks that were used in these massive DOS attacks. Uh, And and what brought down Dyne was was a um, NTP reflection attack. We're recording this the day after Fastly crashed just from a bug. But, you know, our our big CMSs were plagued for a long time by these reflection attacks. And and it had no security stuff. And, and, you know, this lost root password meant that there was a... um, uh, uh, an opportunity for a supply chain attack that, as far as we know, never entered the supply chain, but could have. And we've seen some pretty ghastly supply chain attacks. So, you know, one of the things we can do is we can lower how much institution we need, right? You can literally have mm-hmm. just one guy who's forgotten his root mm-hmm. password maintaining internet scale infrastructure. Arguably, we need a little more infrastructure than that, right? Like, arguably, he probably needed what the, the Internet Civil Engineering Task Force brought, which was like, five grad students who refactored the code and moved it over to a, a standalone Git server and, uh, you know, added commit privileges and an audit phase and, you know, some anti-supply chain hacks and and took out the vulns that were being exploited. But, but you know, even so, that's like five people, four of whom are right. students maintaining this stuff. <laughs> but but the other thing you see is is institutions projecting their will around the world in ways that are remarkable and sometimes terrifying. So that's like anonymous, right? Being able to do these these big denial of service attacks. It's state actors. Um, it being able to do more than than we've ever thought. You know, you think of um, the North Korean hackers taking down Sony, um, but it's also coding for good, right? It's also um, uh, uh, services that are maintained by small teams like Signal that um, help millions of people uh, with with very little overhead, and so. You know, the, the the hierarchy is one of the ways we can arrange our institutions. And one of the reasons we use hierarchy is because it's efficient in the sense that if, you, if the person directing the o- operations is right, and no one's allowed to say, wait a second, I disagree, then it works really well. The problem with hierarchy is it fails badly, right? We're seeing this with all forms of benevolent dictatorship now. So you know, Apple and the App Store. The Washington Post just audited the App Store, which Apple says it needs to have this iron control over, and found that it's filled with scam apps and security vulnerabilities yeah. that its its uh, moderators let through. And so, you know, having a benevolent dictatorship is great when your benevolent dictator is also omniscient. But if they're not infallible, <laughs> right, th- then the, the, the dictator, the, the frame that they put around you to protect you becomes the thing that traps you. And so that's why, you know, ultimately when I think about this stuff, I think about not necessarily non-hierarchical, but but more voluntary forms of hierarchy mm-hmm. where you might say, oh yeah, I want my commits checked by someone who's smarter than I am. You know, I don't publish anything on the Electronic Frontier Foundation, say, without a lawyer and another activist signing off on it, not because I, um, I, I, I'm, I'm too dumb to write good stuff, but because I voluntarily subject myself to that control. So one of the interesting things is why I'm interested in this hierarchy thing is that for me, I'm interested in 3D printing, and I'm interested in that primarily because given enough eyeballs, all things are shallow, right? We could theoretically make all of it or solve all of the thing-sized problems if, we, if enough of us work together. But I'm afraid of hierarchies, and I'm afraid of organizations because they always get abused. and They're always like, kind of like, uh, sources of people taking advantage of others. So how do we work together and make all the things in the world better? 
Well, I mean, I think that that you need to, uh, as I kind of hinted before, attend to how things work and how they fail. Uh, that that's the that's the, and that there are some trade offs, right? Sometimes we have to be willing to sacrifice some utilitarian benefit in exchange for some uh, failure uh, resilience. So here's a good example. Um, in, in about 20 years ago, there was a big split in the um, software freedom movement, and the term free software which emphasized the ethical proposition of, of technological self-determination, that your software should be configured so that you get to decide how you live your digital life. Even if, even if your decision is, I will defer to someone else, that's still a decision you affirmatively make and that you can, you can revoke. And there was this idea that the word free, as in free software, was frightening the squares. It made the normies anxious. And so it was replaced by the term open source. And open source stressed the utilitarian benefits. Um, as you say, with enough eyeballs, all bugs are shallow. So you can have lots of code review. If you run a company, maybe there's, maybe there's some like uh, um, weird stands out there who will write software for you so you don't have to pay engineers to do it. Um, you know, certainly there's some uh, elements of uh, like, stuff that that a whole sector of industry might eschew as an area of proprietary advantage. So you might say, okay, all of us are just going to agree that our transport protocol is TCP. And we're none of us are going to try as they did prior to the the kind of final victory of TCP. None of us are going to try and make like MSN and all these other proprietary protocols. We're we're no longer going to compete on that. Everyone's going to collude to make TCP as robust as possible, right? And that was that was the open source promise. And it was a promise about openness, but not a promise about freedom. And in 2018, a guy named Benjamin Mako Hill, who's a board member for the Free Software Foundation, gave a really important talk at their Libre Planet conference, where he said, what we lost when we abandoned the ethical proposition of freedom in favor of the utilitarian proposition of openness is that we lost the idea that what we were doing was about human benefit and instead about uh, and, and instead we focused our energy on code. And where mm -hmm. we landed after a couple of decades of this is that big tech monopolies have software freedom. So Google can reconfigure its software however it wants, but we have open source. So we can see the backend code Google runs, we can submit patches for it, we can build it on our own computers, but because everything has to loop through Google's clouds and services or Microsoft's or, or Facebook's, the fact that the code is open does not give us freedom because we don't get to tell them how to run it. And by, by taking our eye off the ball, off of human freedom, and by making a concession to utilitarianism over an ethical proposition, every choice that was that followed from that was evaluated not on the basis of freedom, but on the basis of openness. And if it could clear the, bur the, the hurdle of being open, it didn't matter whether it took away freedom. And so th that's, I think, like the very abstract answer. If you, if you want to have institutions that orient themselves towards values instead of towards some empirical thing, like how many lines of code they produce or how, how defect-free that code is, then you have to explicitly say it. You might actually have to explicitly say, we are going to accept code where defects simmer longer and take longer to, to um, fix because we are going to build that code in a way that doesn't allow us to hire as many programmers because we are going to emphasize freedom instead of 
um, code quality in the absence of freedom. Because code quality in the absence of freedom is is an irrelevance, right? Like today we have competition authorities saying like, well, Google has a monopoly on spying on you. How can we fix that monopoly? What can we do to let other companies spy on? Like that's the competition <laughs> authority report in in uh, in the United Kingdom. They're like, Google and Facebook are the only companies that can effectively do what they call, um, uh, oh, what do they call it? There's a There's a word for it where they follow you around. Attribution. They follow you around after you see an ad. So they, they use location data, third-party transaction data, and then web data to see whether you buy the thing you saw the ad for. And um, that's super creepy. And no one should do that. And there's a good and one of the reasons Facebook and Google have such a, a stranglehold on the ad market is because advertisers really like it. And they're the only ones who can do it. And the Competition and Markets Authority says, how do we democratize access to attribution? What they really should be saying is, how do we prohibit attribution as a way of taking away Google's advantage? And if all you focus on is quality, then you're like, who can build the most effective gas chamber? Right? That's not <laughs> what we want. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But so what a system would look like that, that, that would work for stuff. I mean, because I've been trying to develop like systems to develop things. I understand what we can't do, and we, we, we should be a little bit. Uh, you know, I understand what went wrong with 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 the the open source movement, or what made it hijackable. Let's say, um, you know, what should we do differently for the stuff movement? Let's say to make all the things. Well, there's a couple of things. I don't know. I don't have a prescription for you, right? But I have some some ingredients that should go into it. So there's this idea called mm-hmm. the Ulysses Pact. So you know, if you've read your Iliad, you know that um, Ulysses was a hacker, and that though there was like an established protocol for sailing through the the siren infested waters. Uh, which is to stop up your ears with wax so you couldn't hear their song and be uh, tempted to jump into the sea so you can be dragged to your doom. Ulysses was like, I want to hear that song. So he hacked it. He said to his, his sailors, tie me to the mast, but don't stopper my ears so that I can hear the sirens, but won't be able to act on what they, what they compel me to do. And a Ulysses pact refers to any time you, uh, in a moment of strength, acknowledge that your future will have moments of weakness, and you bind yourself to certain courses of action so that you cannot be tempted in your moment of weakness to, to uh, renege on your values. Um, so if you've ever gone on a diet and thrown away all the Oreos, that's a Ulysses pact, right? It, it's not like you can't get Oreos, but you're es- establishing some friction, right? You're making it harder to do it. And free software licenses and open source licenses have this, right? One of the things that is intrinsic to them is uh, irrevocability, as well as with Creative Commons licenses. So what that means is like you set out in the spirit of openness and freedom and uh, and ethical uh, production, and you add a free software license to all of your code. And then, you know, a couple of years goes by and someone comes along and says, I'll give you a million bucks for that code, but you've got to close it. You can't close it, right? You you just can't. Like they can offer you ten million dollars. They can buy out your VCs and threaten to shut you down and put all of your workers out of work. You still can't do it, not because you don't want to, but because you you just can't legally. The license is is irrevocable, and so we can see where this goes very badly, where people fail to take a Ulysses Pact. I mean, most recently there was the uh, disgrace of. Um, uh, free node, which was the big IRC node being being brought offline because they didn't have a structure that that locked it open. Um, and we can also see how that fails badly, where if you allow yourself the 
the choice to renege on your values, you can be coerced into doing it. And, and so a good example of that is Apple, who um, assert the right to decide which software you can install on your devices. And they back that up with both technology and law. So they have DRM, and then they enforce that DRM using anti-circumvention rules so that nobody develops a tool chain for circumventing the DRM. And it turns out that if you develop a legal and technical means to decide which software your users can run, that a government might show up someday and say, hey, we've got some software your users have to run, right? Or we don't want your users to run this software anymore. And so that's what the Chinese government did. They said to Apple, you have to remove all of the working VPNs from your app store. And in so doing, they ensured that all iOS users would install non-working VPNs with backdoors because you can't switch app stores. This was a completely right. foreseeable outcome of arrogating to themselves the right to decide which apps you can run because they were vulnerable, not to the FBI, as it turned out. You know, the FBI made a very similar request to them uh, to, so they could break into the San Bernardino shooters devices. Mm -hmm. uh, and they told the FBI to go pound sand. But um, Apple needs access to Chinese manufacturing. And so and when the they design this, yeah, and the market, but I think more particularly the manufacturing. I think yeah, if Apple lost Foxconn, they'd be they'd yeah, be SOL. They'd be in big problem. Yeah. And so when as soon as that 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 combination of exposing themselves physically, like having physical plant that uh, they depended on in China, and then also having a technical architecture that allowed them to override their users' decisions about how the users use their devices, all but guaranteed that the people who who had the leverage because of the physical plant would use that leverage to uh, demand that that facility be used by, by Apple. And, you know, they could have taken a Ulysses Pact, right? They could have implemented um, <clears throat> third-party app stores, right? A, a, a tick box that says, let me choose something else. You know, that's the thing that I, I um, well, I didn't help build it, but I help uh, popularize it. There's a thing called certificate transparency built into every browser that um, is in use today. And so there's a there's a real problem with with certificates, which is that um, there are a lot of different authorities that can issue certificates. If you look into your browser's root of trust, you'll find thousands of companies uh, can issue root certificates. And in theory, they can issue root certificates for like Google.com and Facebook.com and yourcompany.com and um, you know FBI.gov. And what that means is that um, if you get a bad cert, that sites can uh, invisibly and undetectably perfectly impersonate these other sites or or do man in the middle attacks on them and there were a bunch of problems with this right so one was that like the iranian government hacked a uh, a dutch uh um oh, yeah. uh, certificate <laughs> authority diginotar yeah. gamalta yeah, oh, yeah. yeah yeah and and issued a bunch of certs for themselves there's also um uh CAs in China, right? The Hong Kong Post Office is a CA. And then there's just like CAs that are badly run, including like VeriSign, who are a bunch of Muppets who, you know, they were they were doing things like their their test process for their for like rolling out new tool chains, their their test cases included issuing bogus Google certificates. Just just like that was the final step when they were developing new versions <laughs> of their software. Just an idiotic idea. Right? It's you know, and so um a group of engineers developed a thing. Uh, it's a distributed ledger. It has nothing to do with blockchain, thankfully. Um, but <laughs> every time your browser receives a certificate, it hashes the cert 
along with the CA, so along with the certificate authority information, and it uploads that hash to one of several, one or more of several publicly available ledgers that use uh, a, a, it's a statistical thing called a, a Merkle tree that allows you to build append-only logs, so you can detect whether the log has been altered. Um, so it's a bit like, in that regard, it's a public ledger like a blockchain, but it doesn't need proof of work. And some blockchain technologies use Merkle trees to, to, you know, make the proof of work burden a little less environmentally devastating. Still terrible, though. But what that means is that if a CA were to issue a cert for Google, within about an hour, Google would find it, right? It would just show up in one of these public ledgers. And they, they mm-hmm. and you can monitor one or more of these public ledgers to see all the certs that are being observed in the wild. And um, mm-hmm. when that happens, you have uh, incontrovertible evidence because you have a signed certificate from a CA that the CA had no business issuing. And within 24 hours, every major browser vendor has agreed to strike that CA off of its root of trust. And so if you're the Hong Kong post office and uh, someone from the Politburo shows up and says, we need you to issue a Facebook certificate or a Google certificate. And if you don't, we're going to send you to, you know, a, a death camp in Xinjiang province. You can say, of course, I will do that, right? You're my boss. I respect the rule of law. You get to tell me what to do. I'm going to issue that cert. But here's the thing you need to know. Within an hour, it will be detected. And the next day we will be out of business, right? So it's a way for you to tell your boss who wants you to do something terrible, that if you do the terrible thing, it will impose a cost on them. and it's it's uh it's not a thing you can opt out of once you've opted into it. So there are versions of this like binary transparency um and warrant canaries and so on where you mm-hmm. where you pre-commit and you bake into source oftentimes you bake into your binaries um a mechanism that not only detects uh when you have defected from your promises to your users or to the wider society or your community it also detects when you are contemplating it, right? When you're when you're weakening the mechanism that can be used to to do the detection, so it 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 kind of traps you in an airtight bubble of your own making. And so, if you want to if you want to build a community around some principles, the first thing that I would do is try to figure out how to make those principles such that you yourself can't be coerced into breaking them, not just because you might be weak in the future, but also because it takes everyone who's who's not an idiot who might try to coerce you. And it convinces them not to coerce you, right? It, it actually makes you less liable to coercion. And if they're not if they're not smart enough to understand how that works, and they do coerce you, well, then you recognize that and you rescue your community from it because they immediately detect the coercion, and there's nothing that you can do to stop them. Yeah, because okay, I did at one point come up with this idea that the concept was sDNA, so stuffed DNA, so that we'd have a hash which has all of the let's say triangles, or hopefully we don't use triangles in the future, but. Um, that has all the, the shape embedded in it, right? So that the file itself is actually the the shows you the attribution of the object or who made it and for what and the licenses, and it can't be altered, right? But it's made parametric, so it can be changed uh, to different things. So in, in essence, what you would do is you'd make the file like an XML type of format that is extensible and that, that would let you change it, but it would always carry the, the, the instructions to the original file. So you'd always know who did it, what it was for, and who was the original uh, person. So that kind of idea, I think I've, we have in that concept. But the, the, the thing that the we 
for example, is really a big problem for us is the fact, like, I'm going to anonymize this, but a friend of mine uh, made an object and released it under a Creative Commons license on a large uh, file sharing repository for for 3D printing. Somebody else copied this thing and made money off of it, even though it was a non-commercial license. And now that person who made money off of it is trying to patent that thing, which is even worse, mm-hmm. which probably won't be possible, actually. But there's for stuff, it's very, very difficult to do the enforcement part of this. It's very uh, difficult to, to enforce bad actors. Like, for example, this, you know what you had in your, 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 your previous example, you could drop somebody from the internet, right? That's interesting, right? Mm-hmm. You could be outside of the, the cooperating websites and, the, and that system, right? But in our case, it's very difficult to do that with things, you know? Well, not with files. Yeah. No, I was going to say, you bake it into the file, right? So you have mm-hmm. to set up a file system that has almost like a digital rights management system, if you will, but for tampering, as Corey was suggesting, where every time someone makes a change to the file, it kind of updates. But you could incorporate yeah. like the fact that that friend put it as a non-commercial license. And then when someone tries to re-export the file, it's, uh, it's been updated, I've been re-exported, and then they try and sell it. When it goes to be sold, it's like, I can't be sold because I'm a non-commercial file. Well, so let me, let me push back on you a little here, uh, because here's the thing that you need to, um, contemplate is that if you have devices that are designed so that, um, people who, uh, have, want to send an instruction to their printer sometimes can't because of something in the file. Okay. That's basically what you're talking about, right? I want to send a I want to send a file to my my printer and my printer is designed to tell me I can't let you do that Dave right when you when you try to do it. So I was more thinking about a website but yeah I, we'll use that as an example but I hear Well I mean ultimately like so if you're just talking about a business rule then all you're talking about is um is just like a a content moderation policy you're not talking about something self-enforcing right if 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 it's just a content moderation policy and if there's more than one website, it doesn't matter because some they can just put the file on another website and print it, right? I yeah, mean it does different. it's a good community feature, but it's not an enforcement feature. Um the um but as soon as you design a printer that's that sometimes says no to the person who owns it, then you invite whoever has the facility to decide the circumstances of when it says no to show up at the home or business premises of the people who made the printer and say, we've got some other things that printer shouldn't do. Uh, Right. So that's what, yeah, that's uh, why I I keep shooting down like DRM for 3d printing, not only because it can't work because you can always capture the object out of the the G code or the the graphics card, but also because of this, because like, where do you draw the line? It's the same well, with like the, the UK government using like all of a sudden they're using these decency laws and you don't know where, if they're trying to protect decency or if they're also trying to uh, suppress somebody's dem- democracy or dissent or things like that. Right. Well, so if you want to, if you want to, um, like, it's not like there aren't robust mechanisms for using the courts to defend your copyrights or defend a CC license, right? I mean, you making a commercial edition of a, non-commercial cc object is in fact a copyright violation and like as we know the courts are pretty pretty hard on those the problem is that you've got to hire lawyers and you've got to um clear an evidentiary burden and so on but you know like this is a thing that the free software movement already deals with the free software foundation has a sister organization called the software freedom law center 
All it does is sue dickheads who take free software, claim that it's proprietary, and uh, and and slap a proprietary license on it, and they force them to come into compliance, and they extract titanic amounts of damages from them for doing it. So you know, like again, like you might be trying to stick a gadget where what you need is a uh, charity. Yeah, mm. I like that idea. I like the idea that there should be like some kind of enforcement arm. I like the idea that that could actually be a self funding thing as well. <laughs> Which I've never thought yeah. of actually that kind of thing. Right. What, what do you well, think after 3D... you initially yeah. fund it? <laughs> what, what do you think of three D printing? I mean, it used to be really fascinated by it, but is it still interesting for you, or not so much? Well, it's. I mean, it's in the, the what's it called, the trough of despair now, in the you know the McKinsey hype, <laughs> hype cycle. Yeah. It's definitely in the old yeah. the old profit trough Gartner. of despair. Yeah. Uh, uh, Gartner, yeah. that's right. The thing that I am most disappointed by is that mm-hmm. um, uh, powder printing prices didn't crash after the core patents expired. And I think mm-hmm. that it's a story about um, monopoly and how the the supply chain had become monopolized by the time the patents expired, such that there is mm-hmm. like this durable monopoly power that that extracts monopoly rents. And as a result, mm-hmm. you know, just the whole mm-hmm. field has been just kind of held back. Um, it's mm-hmm. it, like if you're going to you need to have a medium that's cheap enough to experiment with if we don't know mm-hmm. what it's for and we don't really know what it's for yet. And, mm-hmm. you know, if you're talking about powder printing, you'd mm-hmm. be like a goddamn idiot to just sketch something and spend $500 printing it or whatever, right? I mean, like, that's, mm-hmm. that's nuts, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, or, or, you're, uh, or you're, you know, unimaginably wealthy, right? Or you're playing with someone else's money because you're a right. you're yeah, grad student, your boss's you know? Money. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, I mean, think the, about the, the difference the... Between, between batch yeah. computing and interactive computing and then HTML, yeah. where, you mm-hmm. know, when every time you had to like run some cards through the through the IBM 360's input hopper, uh, it, you, you, there was like a charge. People didn't uh, people didn't experiment much with code, right? They didn't make silly stuff. Um, there was it was few and far between. And interactive programming gave us things like um, uh, uh, Adventure, which I forget what it was originally called Massive Cave or something, Giant Cave, which became Zork, and all this other kind of playful computing that no one had ever ever really thought about, mm-hmm. social applications, Play-Doh, and so on. Like, all of that requires a, a low cost basis structure, and right now, the f- I, I love the kind of rep-rap descended designs, but they're slow, uh, they're coarse, um, there's a limit to how good they can get, and in the meantime, the, the promise of powder has just never played out. Okay, well, powder, actually, that's interesting. It's not necessarily monopoly power. It's on the one hand, you've got services that have bought the machines already, so it's inertia, right? They are looking, they, they want these things to work, and a lot of the, and 30% of a part is labor, right? And that's maybe outside looking in, you don't realize that there's a lot of labor in that part, so there's a lot of investment, there's a lot of people in there. So mm. they would be interested in labor-saving devices, which are coming on the market only now. But they weren't necessarily be interested in a cheaper machine, right? Because you have to depowder the part. The thirty percent is uh, is a labor cost, and anything like that. If a cheaper machine would then kind of like make their whole model not work. So the service bureaus never really wanted to do this race to the bottom. We're as an industry, we're captured by um, this idea that nobody wants to. Everybody read the good to great, and everybody is is, uh-huh. is worried that the next guy is going to come out and do the innovator's dilemma thing. And the next guy is going to replace you with a less uh, version of machine. So because of that is a truism, everyone always stays to the top, the high end of the service. And nobody mm-hmm. wants to take the big volume stuff, right? So but, 
That yeah. still feels like a monopoly problem, though, right? Because, like, if yeah. the barriers to entry have dropped a lot and no one's entering, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you're, mm-hmm. you're describing something not distinct from uh, all those people who had, like, timeshare mini computers mm-hmm. who, you know, who, who wanted to recoup their, their investment in, in, those, in that big mm-hmm. iron and who just got, like, completely demolished by personal computers. You know, they, like... They did. They were in the same jam that you're describing, but mm-hmm. it didn't matter yeah. because other people just went out and bought PCs. Yeah, exactly. So, so what the thing with it is why it hasn't happened in powder bed because it's taken very long for people to make a credible powder bed machine. This is really difficult. Um, you right. have to master a lo- uh, lasers and just this kinetics. This, the kinetics of the build volume the build platform are actually really difficult and and not. It's not really anything like any like what happened with the FDM printers. These rep wraps. People ordered a MakerBot. It didn't work. So they like decided, you know what? I spent 40 hours trying to get this thing to work. I'm going to spend 200 hours making a printer. And they had a credible device, you know? And then all mm-hmm. of a sudden, that's why we had hundreds of startups because it took them a couple weekends, right? And a powder bed fusion system, like there's only two small startups, right? There's like mm-hmm. about a dozen or more Chinese companies that are coming and they're coming with much cheaper systems. But these guys are only crossing over into Europe, like Farsud, Xeon Bright Laser and all these other kind of companies are only crossing into Europe just in the last couple of years and in the States as well. So it's just it's just taking a long time for them to do that. It's a much more complicated uh, kind of thing. And metal is more complicated still. So, you know, just because the patent doesn't work in one go doesn't mean that you can actually do it. You know? It doesn't yeah. mean that you can from the one day to the next actually do this. But I think... But it's been, what, I mean, seven years since the patent expired? Yeah. Yeah. Right? I mean, that's a long exactly. time. Yep. It's very difficult. Uh, and you have I to think other that, other printer yeah. technology has also stepped in to take in some yeah. of that. Like if you look sure. at the resin printers and yeah. stuff like that, yeah, I where think you resin- have high accuracy and it can be done at home. You don't need yeah. some Re- massive resin. Uh, definitely an, an, an intermediary technology. I mean, but you know, mm-hmm. also the RepRap descended printers had another problem, right? Which was like also that there was a patent thicket around them. It wasn't as bad, but you know, mm-hmm. I remember someone in like my second week of wrestling with my stupid rep rep printer someone's saying to me hey um you need to make sides for it because breezes are blowing up your prints and i'm like why didn't it come right. with sides and they said there's a pen <laughs> right that's me that's probably me <laughs> <laughs> you have the pattern oh, or you told me to get the sides <laughs> no no i probably got you told to get the sides yeah i'm also like the, i'm also the only guy that tells that tells people to, to run their printer on the ground so not on the desk because it's better on the ground right so that's like typical kind of stuff that i always say like because right. but that's actually that's but that's recently uh well that might have been expired recently but i think the patent thing is also i mean I mean, on the on the FDM, if we're looking at material extrusion printers, RepRap, they're not only simple to do, but also it's very any material that's like a thermoplastic, you can get to run on these printers more or less, you know. Um, so it's also like you can run a ton of different materials, a ton of different material companies can get involved, and a ton of different people that know how to extrude something can make a material and sell it on there, you know. Mm-hmm. So like hundreds of materials companies, like small players, got involved, and later on, dozens of really large companies got involved pushing these materials and making better materials. And that fed that market as well. And then we had Cura and we had Slicer, which were actually quite good good slicing programs. So, you know, right. all the preconditions were there for this to grow. And on on sintering, we 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 have none of those things. There's now five desktop uh, sintering program uh, companies at the moment. And one of them, like Form Labs, spent, I don't know, a couple of years trying to figure out how to make a sintering printer, even though they thought they'd come out with it a long time ago. Yeah, I thought they were a gel printer, UV cured gel, no? They are no, awesome. no, no, no. Oh. no, no. Are they started that way? 
I remember meeting yeah, with them start, when they yeah. first started. Yeah, yeah. They started, yeah, they started, they started, the, they started with the, 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 the SLA or VAT polymerization printer right. with the gel. Resin. Anyway, you know, but in now terms of like where, where my yeah. activism is these days and where my interest is these days, you know, I, I, 3D printing is still a thing that I'm interested in. But, uh, you know, what mm-hmm. I'm, I'm interested in mostly is democratized access to the means of production. And so, you know, mm-hmm. 3D printing hasn't materialized as that as much as other things have. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, particularly like I'm interested in the fact that we now have this real zeitgeist about um, monopolization in the tech sector and that mm-hmm. there's, there's a bipartisan consensus emerging. I think it's not mm-hmm. as sturdy as it could be. I think that like, there's, um, there's a lot of utilitarians in there instead of people who, who embrace principle. There's a lot of, like, for example, I think there's a lot of people on the right who would be perfectly happy to let Facebook have a monopoly if they would change their moderation policies. Um, <laughs> yeah. But but even so, you know, I'm, I, I reviewed, um, we have five antitrust bills about to drop in the United States. Uh, and I interviewed, I reviewed one of the latest ones uh, today, uh, just before speaking to you guys. It's great. I mean, there is mm-hmm. a, more muscular antitrust legislation pending now than at any time in a century. Uh, mm-hmm. It's wild. And so that's where my energy is, because like, maybe we can reverse the trend that turned the web into five giant websites filled with screenshots of text from the other four. You know, wouldn't that be great? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, so Corey, tell us a little bit more what you're doing. So you're doing this activism stuff. What else are you, what else are you interested so in? I, are you I, writing yeah. still? Yeah, I'm working with the Electronic Frontier Foundation as a special consultant. And I remain an uh, MIT Media Lab um, uh, research affiliate and a visiting professor of library science at UNC and a visiting computer science prof at the Open University in the UK. I finished two novels uh, uh, last month. So one is um, uh, a post-Green New Deal eco-utopian novel about truth and reconciliation with white nationalist militias called uh, The Lost Cause. And the other is a kind of cyber noir um, uh, cryptocurrency uh, money laundering novel uh, called mm-hmm. Red Team Blues. Uh, and I've also just finished a nonfiction book with Rebecca Giblin about excessive buyer power in arts markets. So about how artists mm. are getting less money, not because of how much copyright or which copyright they have, but because of market concentration between them and their audience. So the more more value is being captured by by intermediaries and about what remedies we can have rather than just monotonically expanding copyright which has been as useless as giving your your bullied kid more lunch money right you know we you, if you give artists in a cornered market more copyright the people who've cornered the market just just appropriate it as a condition of reaching the market so we talk about other other uh, non copyright mechanisms and and copyright adjacent mechanisms for uh, improving arts markets uh, and then I've got a book of short stories that I'm, I'm finishing up now. They're, they're short stories set in the Little Brother universe. Uh, I published another Little Brother novel last year and did a Kickstarter for the audiobook. So Macmillan did the, the print edition, but I kept the audio rights uh, so I wouldn't have to go with Audible and use their DRM. And so I kickstarted mm. pre-sales and raised about $270,000 off of that. And a couple of my backers uh, splurged for commissioning Little Brother stories. So I'm writing some of those. I'm going to gang them up cool. with the existing little brother stories and we're gonna we're gonna do a book of those and then i've just pitched another crypto another uh forensic accounting cyber thriller to my editor so that's all in play and there's a graphic novel being adapted from my 2019 novella um unauthorized bread which is a book about drm and uh uh 
you know, the, the built environment uh, that's being adapted uh, by Jen Doyle for first second as a, as a uh, young adult graphic novel. Uh, and then last year, I also published a nonfiction book called How to Destroy Surveillance Capitalism. That's a critique of Shoshana Zuboff and uh, focuses on monopoly and the problems with tech. And I published a, a picture book for, for four-year-olds to six-year-olds called Posey the Monster Slayer, uh, about a maker kid who fights monsters in her bedroom with field expedient monster killing weapons she makes out of toys. <laughs> and nice. uh, what else is going on? Um, I think that's all the writing. Is that, is that it? <laughs> oh, and I, <laughs> I have a daily blog. I, I left Boing Boing in, in, late, in early 2020, but I have a blog called Pluralistic. Can I ask you why? Can I ask just, what you know, anything reading? you do for anything you do for 19 yeah. years, it's time to think about something else. I'm still a co-owner, yeah. but it just it it wasn't uh, it wasn't gelling the way that it uh, it had before, and so I do this solo act now, pluralistic.net, which is available as a Twitter feed, uh, a blog, full text RSS. It's on Medium, Mastodon, and Tumblr, um, all published simultaneously, and also as a mailing list. There's no surveillance, no ads. Uh, no tracking and no analytics. So, and it's all CC by, so you can do commercial reuse of it. Uh, so you go to pluralistic.net, you can find the links to all of that. Hey, Corey, thank you so much for, for, for joining us today. And, uh, oh, my pleasure. To and, and Max, thank you so much for being here. Always. And thank you for listening. My name is Joris Peels, and this is another episode of the 3D Pod. You've been listening to the 3D Pod. For more information on what you just heard or to subscribe, visit www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint.com.